Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other week to discuss a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Easter, you two. Happy Easter. He Easter tide. Easter is risen. I, I remember someone told me they didn't think church life would be back to normal until Easter of 2022. And I said, Aww. no way. You're kidding. <laughs> You're so cynical. Profit. And uh, I think there's maybe something to that. What? How's it going? How was it in, uh, how was it in uh, Houston, Sarah? It was great. It was really beautiful and, you know, all the things that needed to be. And my brother and sister-in-law came into town and they showed up at Holy Spirit and we're like, oh my gosh, this is a ton of kids. You know, it was just like really encouraging and it was great. Yeah, it was really good. Rutger, what about Palm Beach? It was amazing. It was just crazy good. It was, uh, I don't know what to say. The, the, the sunrise was great, the 8 a.m. was great, and then the 10 a.m. was just tons of people and tons of kids and Good. a really sweet spirit to stuff and just hugely encouraging. Just amazing Sunday. Amazing wow. Sunday. It was, yeah. it was jammed, jammed here. It was almost as many people as 2019. That's so yeah. good. But the, the, the kids, the, the lots seeing the little kids and... Um, yeah. Everyone uh, just so joyful, and, and folks that you thought had had long since, uh, for whom church was a distant memory, um, being there, and and <clears throat> just our Paul Walker preached the, the wonderful sort of textbook, welcoming, warm Good. acknowledgement of life's difficulty, but total mm. proclamation of mm. of ho- hope um, in the midst of it. And here, of course, we're gearing up hardcore for. The New York City Conference, which is is next week. It's crazy. Who planned this? Right after Easter. I I can't. It's always a couple (laughs) weeks after Easter. It's like, don't talk to anyone who's in ministry like the day after Easter. They'll say no to anything. I know. But if you're on the fence, we'd love to see you. Come on out. You can pay at the door. Uh, I wish there was food on offer, but I think those seats have all been taken. But... We have a, a, a general policy of, of, of never turning anyone away. So please come. Even yeah, if, you, if you're, you're friends strapped. with me and you listen to this, I'll sneak you in. You won't even have to pay. Just <laughs> she That's knows me. the back way. In. Yeah, exactly. I'll just, <laughs> yes. Coming through the crypt. That's right. We're coming in through the crypt. <clears throat> well, anything else happening to report in the, the lives of our, uh, my two reverend friends? We moved into a new house here locally. Um, We, yeah, we just, we want to be here for a long time. And so we we bought a house. I realized uh, as I was, and we moved, we moved during Holy Week, which would just make perfect sense. It was perfect timing. Bananas. Completely insane. I realized it is our 10th house in in a fifth different city in 22 years of marriage. Um, so that's a lot, that's <laughs> and I'm ready lot. to be. I'm ready to be here for a while. I don't want to move ever again. So um, that's just a joyful thing, but also kind of exhausting. So mm. anyway, yeah. wow, I can't believe you did it during Holy Week. Goodness. Yeah, goodness, just how it turned out. Sarah, anything to report? I mean, we're sort of 
facing sabbatical, which is, you know, the thing that we're talking about and thinking about a lot right now. So, yeah, we're really exciting. It's so exciting. Yeah. And I mean, we've never done this before. So it's wild. And we had a whole thing plotted out before the pandemic and then COVID and then mom and dad died. And, you know, so now it's just it's it's we have a very different agenda. So which is really sweet. So we'll be with family a lot. My aunt has actually (laughs) planned like the first official family reunion um, that that side, I mean, I've been growing up with family unions, but that this side of the family is going to have. And I was like, well, I mean, if we're going to make it a real family union, there has to be like racism and cigarettes. So there won't be, <laughs> but um, I shouldn't laugh, but yes, those were my childhood Louisiana memories. Okay. Uh, um, but, um, we're, I'm definitely going to get t-shirts made. Um, I hope with my grandmother's uh, photo on the front of it. And uh, anyway, it's it's really sweet to have something to look forward to and everybody to come into town. Well, uh, not a huge amount happening here outside of, you know, just surviving and, and enjoying. Um, and thriving. Surviving and thriving in <laughs> the age of uh, young children and <laughs> extracurricular activities <laughs> and all the things that that <laughs> occupy our times. I mean, I don't want to. We had a big day yesterday, Dave. Four twenty. <laughs> Your birthday was Your birthday. yesterday. <laughs> I am four thirty. I am forty three. I do have a now a, a new Destro GI Joe action figure on my wall Amazing. to show people Fighting who the forces of Cobra Destro. I, we are like I am in the middle of just like worried. I'm constantly going to miss a rehearsal for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Junior. Like. Oh my. That's just like it, it. We are in this like stage of life where there's like a million. I don't know. It's like today I realized like I had in my planner written down like figure out rehearsal dates for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Junior. And I'm like, what is okay? I often feel like if I just quit all my jobs and stop doing anything, then my kids' lives could be somewhat more somewhat organized. Right. But that's how much manpower it would take yeah. to make sure the laundry to was folded and to make sure the practices are on the calendar yes. and carpools are happening yes. and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, wild. let's talk about this is a fun story to begin with because we're going to devote a, a, lot, a big chunk of this uh, episode to a, a, one article. But this is a sort of a, a, a preface. Um, and this is a story that appeared in the New York Times in early April. And I don't know if you knew this. This is Gina uh, Cherellis wrote this. Since last fall, more than 21,000 overdue or lost items have been returned in Manhattan, Staten Island, and the Bronx. Some so old, they were no longer in the library's system. These have been returned to the public library. About 51,000 items were returned in Brooklyn between October through the end of February. More than 16,000 were returned in Queens. Some of these items, and they say it's not just books because there's, I guess, DVDs and records involved, were checked out decades ago. They arrived with apologetic notes of, quote, enclosed are books that I have borrowed and kept in my house for 28 to 50 years. I am 75 years old now, and these books have helped me through motherhood and my teaching career. One patron wrote in an unsigned letter that accompanied a box of books dropped off at the New York Public Library's main branch last fall. I'm sorry for living with these books so long they became family. Now, uh, writing for our website, Matt Pearson picked up on this in a wonderful article. He said, why would someone who checked out a book nearly 52 years ago decide to return it now? Why would tens of thousands of people, quote, do the right thing now? 
Well, last October, New York Public's library system announced that they would be eliminating all late fines. Uh. It's true. And this is Pearson writing. They canceled the debts. They took on the penalty. All the accumulated fines were suddenly removed. Freedom. Nothing owed. No punishment. Why did the library system do it? He quotes the, the, head, uh, the, the head of the public library system. The goal was to get books and people back to the more than 200 branches as well as research centers across the city after a year and a half of limited hours and access. A wave of returned overdue materials came crashing in, accompanied by a healthy increase, between 9 and 15%, of returning visitors. In other words, people were free to enjoy their libraries as originally intended. Tony Marks, who is the, the president of the, the library system, realized that they were, quote, not in the fine collection business. Mm. Rather, they are in the encouraging to read and learn business, and we were getting in our own way. Mm. In other words, as Pearson writes, they realized that the law of fines and fees prevented the libraries from fulfilling their purpose. All the guilt and shame and debts accumulated made it impossible for people to do the right thing and enjoy a library. But when the penalties were removed and absorbed, everything changed. People behaved and people enjoyed the library again. It's amazing, Pearson writes, what we will do when the motivation is right, when we are safe, when we are secure, when we truly believe we have nothing to lose. He writes, I think this is the way the Christian life is intended to work. The cross is God's way of saying we will never be rejected. Hmm. What a story. I mean, Love what it. a sermon illustration. That's <laughs> like know. check and done. Like <laughs> I'm going to so use it this good. weekend. I mean, uh, I was thinking when you were reading that, I was thinking about how how much I mean, I don't this is going to sound like we're tooting our own horn, but maybe it's just me tooting our horn. Just how much like we give away. Oh. And how much I love that about us. Like the and that I mean, I wasn't a part of this organization in the beginning, but like clearly that was in this world of like subscriptions to get access to things um mm. just how much gets given away you know um i don't know i i kind of i love that i think that's really it's really beautiful it reminds me that of how every so often some state will decide to have sort of a, a tax what do you call it like not a tax holiday but like a oh. tax a tax forgiveness period where they'll yeah. say hey if you forgot to file your taxes yeah. or you know that you owe back taxes you know between this day and this day just pay it it's fine no big deal we're not going to come after you we're not going to overcharge you just pay what you owe and almost without fail they take in like 10 times more money than they ever thought they would because all these poor people are sitting at home just sweating bullets that right. they're going to get audited, you know? And so this uh, this ability to, like, live live in the light a little bit, as Jesus talked about, without fear of uh, reproach or judgment. Um, and it's just a perfect illustration of what does Paul say in Romans? Uh, Do you not know that it's God's kindness which leads us to repentance? You know, we think that repentance has to come before forgiveness, but it's actually the other way around. Like, forgiveness and kindness uh, give birth to repentance. They enable repentance. When you know you're going to be forgiven, you can actually tell the truth. Well, some of these people seemed like they were kind of repentant, though, before. They just didn't think that they would ever be assured of any kind of forgiveness, right? I mean, yeah, they that's were, right. They felt badly they, about it. They, they, they didn't, didn't throw go. out the books, it sounds like. They knew where they were. They just were—but I, I think I, I'm, I'm with you. I think it's a, just this wonderful illustration of the—you think— 
that the fines are keeping people, you know, making sure they return their books. And maybe they are, but it, it could be that they're also keeping people from returning their books. And that is such a bold move. I And it, it did, by the way, come at a cost. I guess that the, the library system takes in $3 million a year in fines. And so they had to figure wow. out another way to make up that revenue without, like, cutting people. But, um, yeah, uh, just... The, the number, the sheer number of people who were like ready to get this off their chest uh, made me so happy, I guess. Yeah. It's like a, uh, we, we, sometimes, you know, when people want to resist the debt payment language, and I know it's, it's just, it's one part language among many, but still, if you've ever had a debt and it's been forgiven, it's been wiped away, you know how powerful that can be. And yeah. how it does motivate people. Also, th- makes me think of there was another article this week about uh, recovery programs in the age of sort of um, influencers and how there's a lot of people, kind of uh, a lot of books out there, sort of helping, especially women in the, that sphere, get sober. And uh, there was a, I think Virginia Heffernan writing about it in Wired and said, you know, that this is, she'd gotten sober through the old fashioned way, the AA way. And she said, there's a lot of good here, but you also have to admit that ultimately they're trying to get you, you have to buy something. You have to join a program. And um, I mean, the same as certain types of religious things as well. Uh, And the fact that AA is free and no one is profiting from it or can profit just makes it a little more trustworthy in my book i don't know if you feel that way it's wild that there i was just thinking like it's wild that there are institutions that still do this right like you know i mean aa does this the library does this the church Um, i mean church does this right yeah i mean like we hope You know, my my son asked me the other day, it's like, do I have to, pay, dad, do we pay to go to church? Oh, yeah. I'm always any like, in blood. <laughs> Jesus paid it all. <laughs> right. But what any organization that can, re- can relieve you of a burden, like I've been taking, you know, as we've been moving, I've been taking a lot of things to Goodwill. And I have to say, I'm so thankful for Goodwill because the idea of like trying to put it on free cycle or like throw it away and it's getting up in some landfill or something like that but to be able to like take a bunch of stuff to Goodwill where you feel like it's it's gonna go to someone who needs it for a very low price someone's gonna get their salary paid you know it was just I I drive away from Goodwill just feeling like a burden has been lifted off my my shoulders I think the only two things they won't take are like children's car seats and mattresses that I can handle (laughs) but everything else they'll just take and you you get the sense They've had, they had a, there's a real there's good reason why they don't take those you know absolutely it's like, yeah, I'm like yeah, I yeah. completely get yeah. it but everything yeah. else they'll take That's and I don't have amazing. to feel guilty because I've just put it in a garbage can and it's gonna live you know in the ground for ten thousand years mm. at least I won't do it somebody else might do that I mean I didn't me. want to say that but I was like I mean you might just be <laughs> moving the burden let down have the my line illusions. but I hear let me you. have my illusions I hear I'm gonna you know? outsource my capitalist guilt to goodwill. <laughs> Yes, I think that's uh, anyway. Um, well, let's move on. The big article to talk about this week is the kind of must-read that's made its way around every every corner I've been around, including you know Jeff Bezos tweeting this to, um, I mean, wild Jeffrey to- Bezos. <laughs> Jeff- Sorry, I just can't help. This is the Atlantic. It's the long read by Jonathan Haidt moral psychologist, why the past 10 years of American life have been uniquely stupid. 
And he starts out by talking about the Tower of Babel. He says, the story of Babel is the best metaphor I have found for what happened to America in the 2010s and for the fractured country we now inhabit. Something went terribly wrong very suddenly. We are disoriented, unable to speak the same language or recognize the same truth. We are cut off from one another and from the past. He goes on, he says, it's been clear for quite a while now that red America and blue America are becoming like two different countries claiming the same territory, with two different versions of the Constitution, economics, and American history. But Babel is not a story about tribalism. It's a story about the fragmentation of everything. It's about the shattering of all that had seemed solid, the scattering of people who had been a community. It's a metaphor for what is happening not only between red and blue, but within the left and within the right, as well as within universities, companies, professional associations, museums, and even families. I might add churches to that list. Mm. He says, historically, civilizations have relied on shared blood, gods, and enemies to counteract the tendency to split apart as they grow. But what is it that holds together large and diverse secular democracies such as the United States? Social scientists have identified at least three major forces that collectively bind together successful democracies. Social capital, which is social networks with high levels of trust, strong institutions, and shared stories. Social media has weakened all three. To see how, we must understand how social media changed over time, and especially in the several years following 2009, all of which revolve around the intensification of viral dynamics. This is what he said. He says, before 2009, Facebook's had given users a simple timeline, a never-ending stream of content generated by their friends and connections, with the newest posts at the top and the oldest ones at the bottom. That began to change in 2009 when Facebook offered users a way to publicly like posts with a click of a button. That same year, Twitter introduced something even more powerful, the retweet button, which allowed users to publicly endorse a post while also sharing it with all of their followers. Like and share buttons quickly became standard features of most other platforms. I'm going to stop here in a second. Before I do, uh, he says, by 2013, social media had become a new game with dynamics unlike those in 2008. If you were skillful or lucky, you might create a post that would, quote, go viral and make you, quote, internet famous for a few days. If you blundered, you could find yourself buried in hateful comments. Your post rode to fame or ignominy based on the clicks of thousands of strangers, and you in turn contributed thousands of clicks to the game. This new game encouraged dishonesty and mob dynamics. Users were guided not just by their true preferences, but by their past experiences of reward and punishment, and their prediction of how others would react to each new action. One of the engineers at Twitter who had worked on the retweet button later revealed that he regretted his contribution because it had made Twitter a nastier place. As he watched Twitter mobs forming uh, through the use of the new tool, he thought to himself, we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. The newly tweaked platforms were almost perfectly designed to bring out our most moralistic and least reflexive, re- least reflective selves. The volume of outrage was shocking. I'm so sad now. <laughs> well, what's interesting <laughs> is he's describing the exact time in which Mockingbird started. I mean, that's true. Yeah, we, we started in what feels like a very like a foreign. And people country. used to write really nasty comments, and now they just email them to us. But yeah, yes. they email to you, or they blast you on social media. Yeah, and it's like okay, yeah. I mean, 
you know. He's making some bold claims. He's not, by the way, it doesn't sound like he's saying that people, like, that none of this ever existed beforehand. Right. But the intensification of vi- what goes viral and something going viral super fast, that simply did not exist before 2010. Um, I mean, we all have... Um, what, what, RJ, you're shaking your head. What are you, what are you thinking? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how much more of the, you're going to read this in a few different chunks, right? Yeah. 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 It caused me to be reflective. Like, I'll, I'll share a personal story, which is, um, you know, after the Sandy Hook shooting, mm. which was close to where I grew up mm. uh, in Connecticut, and actually I have an aunt who worked for a time at that school. Oh, RJ. And that was just, can we say, a uniquely, well, I want to say uniquely, but pretty distinctively horrible It was event little in, kids. In country. Yeah. I mean, yeah, little yeah, kids, yeah. right? Yeah. There have been mass shootings, yeah. but for someone to walk in and kill 30 kindergartners or whatever it was, like so awful. And so I posted some things on Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, that I felt strongly about. And this was, gosh, now what, eight, 10 years ago? I can't remember when Sandy Hook was, something like that. Yeah. Um, and I felt pretty good about myself doing it. Um, and I think there was a moment where I felt like social media could be a vehicle for sort of meaningful change or progress on issues. But then I noticed um, that uh, I had friends who really had a tough time with what I posted. And we started to engage on Facebook, but then we just engaged by texting, and then we actually talked to one another. And we had some substantive conversations around it. Um, And I think I just really quickly realized that Facebook wasn't good for that. You know, and I, I sort of I sort of stopped. I think I pretty much stopped doing that. And at this point, I really use social media to like literally to post pictures of my family and keep in touch with friends and check in and you know and, and a little bit to, you know, uh, project my best life. Like let's be honest, you know, sure, <laughs> like, like, every, yeah, like yeah, everybody yeah. does. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to like tell everyone when, when I'm having a really hard time or something. I mean, maybe I will sometimes, um, but I don't. I just don't know this whole, you're going to read more about it, but this whole sense of, of our, our country being torn apart, like, yes, I get that. It feels that way. That's what we see on social media. That's what we see on the news. But do I feel that way about my day-to-day life? Do I feel like people are being torn apart in my day-to-day life? I don't know if I do. And mm-hmm. I wonder how much of this is driven by, you know, he talks about how when they do political surveys of American culture, there's like... of the population is on the extreme left and 7% is on the extreme right. And they're all, and both sides are very wealthy and very white. (laughs) And they do the vast majority of talking about this stuff. And they're drawing everyone else into their craziness. Mm. But what about the other 85%? You know, and and I just, um, or even like, I guess I'm technically on Twitter because I look at it like once a month or something like that. And I mm-hmm. post things like twice a year. Does that put me in the 22% of American adults who use Twitter? I don't know. I just don't know. I, it's tough for me to figure out how much of this, how real this is and how much of it is just how things feel because we're on social media and watch the news so much. You know, or if this is actually reflective of our day-to-day lives. And maybe you guys can talk about that, being in college towns. You know, or I don't, and maybe maybe we're gonna get a little bit smarter or something. And, uh, yeah, and I recognize say, that. I, yeah, I mean, I don't know how Dave feels about it, but I I definitely feel like my students are on social media less 
than people my age, which is like, and they don't see it as a vehicle me. for meaningful social change, do they? My kids certainly don't. Like when things come up, they're just like, oh, I'm so over that. <laughs> it was like a week ago, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, I, mean, I heard about that. Whatever. I do think it's complicated. I mean, just and I've I think I feel like I've said this on here before, but you know, for for marginalized groups, uh, especially people of color, you know, and I think of like the Arab Spring, like there have been these moments, right, where social media has been kind of the, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, the kind of yes way in which we knew that this was happening and word was spread. I don't, I don't know if it's changed things. I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, he actually I, cites the Arab Spring as the high watermark. Uh, yeah, but, but he does. But he does. He says that was, was like the because I was, remember that was when that happened. Eleven before okay. the viral stuff took over. Because I remember and as we thinking, know, everything like, in the Middle East has been perfect. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's been, it's but been when it happened, I was like, progress it was kind of a then. similar feeling, RJ. You're talking about of like, oh, this could be harnessed for good. You know? Yes, totally. Like, yes, I remember it was having good, that thought. You know? And then it was just, and then it's just like, like, I as well have a Twitter account and I get on once a month, only I get on once a month, scan through tweets for about maybe two minutes and get so sad that I immediately get off. And that's it. Yeah. Like, I, I don't post, yeah. I don't, you know, and when people get mad about stuff that I've written on uh, for Mockingbird and they, They'll post it with some, or they'll you know tweet it with some kind of angry thing. I'm just like, well, good thing I'm not on Twitter, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's know. a, it's a. He tries to. I mean, listen, we've been talking about the dangers of social media for years. What the the difference about this piece is that it's just so uh, panoramic, and he yeah. draws on so much research, and not, and he's not blaming the right or the left. And in fact, what he says is that. Social media has given voice to people who had little previously and has made it easier to hold powerful people accountable for their misdeeds, not just in politics, but in the business, arts, academia, and elsewhere. Sexual harassers could have been called out in an anonymous blog post before Twitter, but it's hard to imagine that the Me Too movement would have been nearly so successful uh, without the viral enhancement the major yeah. platforms offered. And then he finally says, however, the warped, quote, accountability of social media has also brought in its fair share of injustice mm. and political dysfunction. He says that across eight studies, two social scientists recently found that being online did not make most people aggressive or hostile. Rather, it allowed a small number of aggressive and hostile people to attack a much larger set of yes. victims. And yes, additional research finds that women and black people are harassed disproportionately, so the digital public square, square is less welcoming to their voices. <laughs> And then he uh, he talks about that exact t uh, uh, thing that you mentioned, RJ, about the seven groups of in American politics ideologically. The the, the six percent comprise the sort of devoted conservatives, and on the further furthest left, it's the progressive activists. They're eight percent. The progressive activists were by far the most prolific group on social media. Seventy percent had shared political contact over the previous years. The devoted conservatives, though, followed at fifty-six percent. Um, and yes, the two extreme groups are similar in surprising ways. They are the whitest and richest of the seven groups, mm. which suggests that America is being torn apart by battle between two subsets of the elite who are not representative of the broader society. There's such a fascinating, like, is it I'm real not gonna... or is it not real? Like what Dave Chappelle, I mean, I know people yeah. have mixed emotions about Dave Chappelle, but what did he say? I don't care what you say about me on Twitter. Twitter's not a real place. <laughs> 
but then like, but it RJ, we say I, I i agree with you there just like turn off your phone yeah. you don't know it you're no one's out here under duress um but then you do but. read another survey that came out the same week that this article came out saying yeah. that the percentage of american teens uh who um felt persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26% in 2009 to 44% in 2021. So it's like, Shut and, it down. it's not just social media that's doing this, but it is it, when he says it exacerbates our most moralistic and non-reflective tendencies. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. That it does have, it almost doesn't matter if it's real or not because it becomes a, a thing. He he refers to it as like Twitter. Once the things had a chance to go viral, it was like handing out dart guns to a million people, basically. And everyone's just, yeah. they're not killing each other with tweets, but they're just shooting darts nonstop. And that's a hugely um, uh, difficult, you know, way to live. I mean, Sarah, you you've... Social media is related to the teenage sadness, but it's not the sole yeah. part of it. But there is a whole lot of sadness out there. Um, oh yeah, of course. And yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and most of the studies show that it's the it's it's kind of the 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 cohort that grew up not able to socialize outside of these forms um, that have a harder time. Um, forming close connections and forming the community, mm-hmm. being part of the communities that would, might give them purpose, and they they in the meanwhile because of like the disinformation and the the political polarization they 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 cease trusting any of the uh, institutions. Yeah. Like there's it, those are so under the fake news thing is so undermined our trust in what's real. You know, the same thing that we have different facts, not just different opinions about the facts. Right. I just I feel like. Um, you know, and maybe this is like unique to my students, but I just feel like they're post nine eleven kids, and they've grown up in a horrifying world on every at every level. And you know, I think there just aren't any adults in the room anymore. And I think that I think sometimes that's how I think they feel. You know, <laughs> like it's just like I'm not sure that it's like oh they're on social media so much and that contributes to sadness so much as it is like everyone is aware that the world is falling apart and this is the world that they're about to like launch themselves into yeah. i don't know you know and but is I, that and different I, than us than us yes, growing up I, during I, the yeah, red scare absolutely uh, that threat of nuclear war absolutely or like kids us. kids shipping being Maybe shipped off different to vietnam for me. I, you're old i don't know anything you're talking about but like <laughs> i mean like so there seriously was, so though, maybe like, you're right Maybe there was a gap between the fall of the Soviet Union and 9/11, where it was like, "Oh, everything's great. Things Check us out." Things were pretty good, you know. Okay? But before, I remember being very scared of the Soviet Union growing no. up. No. And then before that, I mean, mm-hmm. kids were getting drafted into Vietnam. No. You no. know. Mm-mm. I was scared of people being well, mean to me you. at the mall. Okay. That sounds amazing. It was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sorry you lost that. <laughs> I am too. It was great. So. But yeah, no, I do. I think it's a, I think it's a different war. I mean, like I always look around, I'm like, who are the adults in the room? Like, it's, this is like, you know, I don't know. Well, the, I, I, what, what he focuses on again, that I think is, is uh, interesting and fresh here is that it's not just that social media gave voice to a gazillion different people. 
Yeah. Um, but, and that's, that was, we might say that's good. And he kind of points back to like the early blogging days as being kind of good. And I remember those days being kind of excruciating and getting all negative feedback all the time. But <laughs> he says that today, the They're like this is the second use of the law. Okay, keep going. <laughs> the way that the algorithms work is that they don't show you the most recent stuff. They show you the stuff that's most likely to get an emotional reaction from you. Use and the stuff that gets the most emotional reaction from you is stuff that makes you angry, and that you're more likely to share. And so the things that are fur- most upsetting, machine. most upsetting, go uh, are spread faster and more impulsively than anything else. And so. Um, um, and he, he also, he then goes on to say that, like, um, what happened is that uh, America's key institutions in the mid to late 2010s got stupider en masse because social media instilled in their members a chronic fear of getting darted, getting a dart thrown at them. The new omnipresence of enhanced virality social media meant that a single word uttered by a professor, leader, or journalist, even if spoken with positive intent, could lead to a social media firestorm, triggering an immediate dismissal or a drawn-out investigation by the institution. Participants in our key institutions, in other words, began self-censoring to an unhealthy degree, Mm. holding back critiques of policies and ideas that they believed to be ill-supported or wrong. He gives a gazillion examples of this on the right and the left. He says, but when an institution punishes internal dissent, it shoots darts into its own brain. He gives an example. He says, tragically, we see stupefaction playing out on both sides in the COVID wars. The right has been so committed to minimizing the risks of COVID that it has turned the disease into one that preferentially kills Republicans. The progressive left is so committed to maximizing the dangers of COVID that it embraces an equally maximalist one-size-fits-all strategy for vaccines, masks, and social distancing, uh, even uh, as they pertain to children. Uh, and many of these policies have been devastating for the mental health and education of children who desperately need to play with one another and go to school. So that the vested interests here, again, in both, and I've been in these situations where you're, because I'm in a very blue town, where there's a lot of people who secretly felt that we were not taking into account the mental health enough, but felt that if they shared that information, they were going to get tarred um, publicly. And they did get tarred. I mean, frankly, the tweets went nuts. And so there was a silencing in that regard. And they weren't afraid of, they weren't afraid of the, uh, you know, the the red county going after them. They were afraid of the, the, the people t- that were more aggressive. Their neighbors. In their neighborhood going after them. And that, that does make people dumber. I mean, it, 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 if, you, if you can't question anything, right? I don't know. Yeah. Did this happen in the church, guys? What do you think? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> no, I'm going to say this did not happen in my church during the pandemic. And maybe it's because I was so new and they just wanted to be, like, nice to the sweet young priest. <laughs> but, oh, they think you're young. But, it, but <laughs> exactly, I am. Um, but it really, it, it, it didn't really happen. Like, I, I don't, and I know that I've got people who are red state people and people who are blue state people, but we haven't really gotten into these fights about this stuff. Um, maybe just by the grace of God. Um, it certainly doesn't happen in like, the well, way that it, does, it did in school, so that's for sure. No, and, and then I feel like maybe I mean, I, I've been, maybe what no. it is is just my own either wisdom or cowardice at saying I'm just not going to talk about politics ever. I'm just, you know, what do they say at, at cocktail parties? You know, no God and no politics. Well, I'll talk a lot about God, but I'm not going to talk about politics. I just try to keep it 
out of things and keep the main thing the main thing. Um, and I don't know. We had 600 people in church on Sunday, and like five were masked, which like praise God, I'm glad they were. They had their reasons, for, and, and I know what a lot of their reasons are. And we all just worshiped together and had a good time. And when, when we had to socially distance, we did. When people had to wear masks, they did. When we could take them off, they did or they didn't. We got along. I don't know, man. That's what, maybe I'm in a unique context. Mm. But I just, I don't Sarah see my community being I torn apart what, by what this. she has to say. Yeah, what does Sarah have to say? I just think, like, what my experience was in observing churches was the harder the rules came down from the church, the more resistance there was, which was, like, kind of fascinating to watch. Mm. I mean, it was definitely, like, a greater law, the greater the trespass kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, I think because... There is so much misinformation out there. People felt sort of emboldened, right, um, to start fights with their church. And I don't know. I mean, I we didn't experience this at Holy Spirit, but I mean, RJ, like we, you know, like we all know people who like ex- did whether or not they we came do. down with rules, right? Experienced that in their context, yeah. and it was brutal. You know, I mean, I, I mean, this article makes me think just of how many like clergy have like left ministry. Yeah. Since the mm. pandemic and over social media and, you know, I don't, I just, I mean, it just makes me think of like how, and I've, I've had seasons in my life like this and I pray to God that like, I never have to have one again, but where I spend too much time on social media and it does become more like my real world and it mm-hmm. does feel like those consequences matter and it does feel like I'm really connecting people with people and none of that is true or real. It's just not like it's kind of miserable, you know, like mm. I need like real life friends. I need, you know, I need y'all. I need, I need my kids. I need my husband. Like, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think, I think you're right. I don't just don't know how to, one of the th- great things about this article is that he actually proposes a few things that could make it a little less, because I, I feel personally like I ha- kind of have to be on there, not only for Mockingbird, but for, for 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 book writing and just like, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of like going off. Totally. Livelihood wise. Yeah. But so what do you, what if, for those people for whom, and my, my wife was saying the other day, like she's a painter. She says the truth is like, I, I can't stand Instagram. I hate it. But if I, every time I spend a week sort of working hard on Instagram, I end up selling a painting. And like, yeah. I don't, otherwise i don't do that so it's like it's become a necessary evil now what he does though is he actually gives a couple of things that could help uh the 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 biggest single change that would reduce the toxicity of existing platforms would be user verification as a precondition for gaining algorithmic amplification that social media offers Meaning banks and other industries have like a know your customer rule so that they can't do business with anonymous clients laundering money from criminal enterprise. Large social media platforms should be required to do the same. This does not mean users would have to post under their real names. They could still use a pseudonym. It just means that before a platform spreads your words to millions of people, it has an obligation to verify 
uh, perhaps through a third party, that you are a real human being in a particular country and are old enough to be using the platform. This one change would wipe out most of the hundreds of millions of bots and fake accounts that currently pollute the major platforms, would also likely reduce the frequency of death threats, rape threats, racist nastiness, and trolling more generally, because research shows that antisocial behavior becomes more common online when people feel their identity is unknown and untraceable. Now that strikes me as a as a very like Captain Obvious type of thing. He's not. There's no uh, partisan component to it. It's like you if you you want access, we just have to make sure you're a, a person. Like that's mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be too much to ask. And the truth is, people with the anonymity thing. We had to turn off anonymous comments in the early days of Mockingbird because those were invariably the meanest. You know. Oh yeah. Mm. And like it was like okay, let's just see what this does, and uh, it it changed it overnight. I mean, it shut down discussion a little bit, but um, it was a it was a mental health move for the people running the website. You know. Yeah. Anonymity, because it's so strange though, because I want people to engage from a place of safety. You know, and I think sometimes not putting your name, your identification out there is is keeps a person safe. And so I think that the pseudonym thing is actually probably just given how damaging life can be, I it, it better to engage from behind a wall than to not engage at all. And um, at least if you're that lonely. And mm. so I want to, but the, the true anonymity where I can basically throw a brick through a window and no one, you know, just run away in, in every area of my life that doesn't seem to bring out the human the power co- the human condition which no one ever uses for good <laughs> the, the, power, it, it, the human condition seems to be such that another thing he says about the human condition is that um he quotes james madison says that people are so fr- prone to factionalism that when no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have be- been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. Social media has both magnified and weaponized the frivolous. Mm. Yeah, that interesting. So here's one thought: is a little bit of a different tack, but I have thought about this a lot, uh, just in my ministry, in my preaching, in my teaching, in my just life. And I think if the last however many years has shown me anything, it's that at the end of the day, people will only believe what they want to believe. They'll only believe what they want to believe. It doesn't matter how much other people are trying to change their mind. It doesn't matter how much counter, um, you know, evidence there might they might be presented with. People believe what they want to believe. That's number one. And number two is you can't change anybody's mind about anything ever. I you know. And so, what that means is when it comes to like my preaching and my teaching, um, my number one thing is uh, let me show them first, and you know, you guys believe this too, why you would want to believe in Jesus. Why would you want to, why would you want this? Why would you want something that's good? Because you've got to start with the heart. And that's what's happened with all of this social media stuff is um, people are just, I don't know, it's, it's not rational. It's totally irrational on both sides, everywhere, and it's all desire-driven and heart-driven, and you can't change anyone's mind. All you can do is you, what have you talked about, Dave, the power of a greater affection? Something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, all you can do is hope that their their rage or whatever it is might be overtaken by the power of a greater affection, <clears throat> starting with the affection that someone has for them, namely God, and then the affection they give back to this being that loves them unconditionally, which then begins to soften their hearts towards 
other people and to lower the temperature on their anger, which all comes out of this false idea that you can change someone else's mind and that you're right. Mm. You know, the great thing about church is that entering, someone said this to me recently, just entering a church means um, holding out the possibility that you might be wrong, Mm. right? Because you're going to worship something bigger than yourself. You're going to confess, you know, um, and those are ideas that don't exist on social media. Do you guys feel what I'm saying? No, I love that. I love it. I mean, yeah, I think that makes total sense. I, I, you know, I, I actually think the word desire is really interesting in this context. Um, like I'm thinking about other words alongside that, like, what is it that we, I don't know. I, I wonder what part of us is fed, um, We want to feel important because we're right and we've changed other people's minds to agree with us and affirm what we believe. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. You know? And And, and it is, I mean, I I get this like, oh, it's always been there in some capacity, but it it is so very, very different. You know, it's just so, I mean, I I just think about the, the lives of, you know, people in my family before me and they were like, everyone lived in the same town and everyone saw each other every day and people didn't agree politically and that was totally fine. And, you know, they went to Bible study together and churches together. And it's just so, um, it's just so evil. It's scary. I mean, I, I hate to use that word, but like, especially because we're like, we wouldn't exist without the internet, but you know, it is like, it's really terrifying to me another potential solution or something constructive that he offers is, and it's related to the, the teen's depression thing. He says this, he says, childhood has become more tightly circumscribed in recent generations with less opportunity for free unstructured play, less unsupervised time outside, more time online. Whatever else the effects of these shifts, they have likely impeded the development of abilities needed for effective self-governance for many young adults. Yet unsupervised free play is nature's way of teaching young mammals the skills they need as adults, for which for humans include the ability to cooperate, make and enforce rules, compromise, adjudicate, uh, adjudicate conflicts, and accept defeat. The depression, if this is true, uh, makes people less likely to want to engage with new people, ideas, and experiences. Anxiety makes new things seem more threatening. As these conditions have risen, as the lessons on nuanced social behavior learned through free play have been delayed, tolerance for diverse viewpoints and the ability to work out disputes have diminished among many young people. So, I mean, we talk a lot about play and playfulness, and this is actually the idea with children when you deny them the ability to, because he, he, he also sort of uh, traces the, the timeline to when a certain generation that had had less free playtime than any generation before grew up, they, um, they, they, they were, uh, their mode of operating was they were depressed and they were anxious mm-hmm. partly because they were never allowed to um, engage on their own steam. They were always uh, over-supervised. And I don't know if it means just letting you know kids roam the streets and wildly. I don't think that's what he's arguing for, but I do think that the, that play is not just about enjoyment in a lot of ways, that there is something uh, helpful to it. And um, it involves sort of like if those of us who believe in God believe that you know God deals with sometimes the parent is so over involved that the, 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 the child like never experiences the world, God's world sort of on their own. 
And that can be really detrimental. So he's basically encouraging, he's like, one thing we can do, yes, we can make sure people are, are actual human beings before they use these things. We can say you have to be 16 to use these technologies. Yeah. But three, like, let your children play more. Like, yeah. and that'll, that'll help. Bring back recess. That'll help, that'll help parents and it'll help, it'll help kids. Like, have an extra I mean, extra I don't know if it'll help parents, let's be real. They're always coming in like, I don't have anything to do. <laughs> so and so uh, didn't let me. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I do think there is this kind of ratcheted familial anxiety that can happen where it's like, you know, and I've, I'm so guilty of this and I regret so much of it where, like, the kids were little and I'd post, like, a hot take on social media and then spend Saturday just, like, checking my phone every 30 minutes, right, to see if someone has, like, responded to it and if I need to respond to them. And then, you know, my kids, are, there's a television on and there's, like, maybe a screen out depending on how old they were. And it's like, yeah, they just should have been outside. And you probably should have been outside with them with, like, a Bud Light in your hand. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, I mean, there, you know, and I, I, I also, like, never want to make – parents feel bad and I certainly know like after mom and dad died there was like a season where like the kids just like knew they were going to be on their iPads and like they actually talk about that like it was the best time of their lives they're like mom said yes to everything um but we've definitely like pulled that back and and they're happier mm. I mean they were it really is like yeah. amazing like them just going in the backyard, like Neil's super into yo-yos right now. Oh my goodness. Like he just goes in the backyard and like does like his all his little yo-yo tricks, you know? I um I wanna ask though, because people ask me this somewhat frequently actually. They're sort of like, well, given this. And Height says unless these technologies themselves are changed, it's gonna get a lot worse. Like it's not mm-hmm. it's not getting any better. The trains left the station and yeah. we can do some things to arrest it, but by and large, political polarization is going to get worse. Um and but just because it's just is that possible. It is <laughs> I know, exactly. It's he says it's going to get more the rage thing until the actual technology that allows things to go viral, rage inducing things to go viral until that slowed down just slightly enough to catch up with how human beings actually operate and give them time to reflect on what they're actually sharing. um, It's going to get worse. And so my question to you is like, what, what role does the church play the gospel um those of us who are just or just care about the 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 cause of god in the world and god's grace how do you how does how does that fit in to the distrust of institutions the virality because sometimes i feel like i'm just chasing a different type of virality like a viral you know i just want i just want the gospel to go viral you know what do you think? Sir, do you have anything? Okay, Justin Bieber. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dave. A lot of people tell uh, me I remind them of Justin Bieber. I mean, all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I don't think I'd fully realized how called to that we probably are, right, as the church. And I feel like we've just contributed to this and to to the harm in so many ways like you know there's just so much stuff even within our own denomination of 
it you I used to really have the fight in me for that and I just death has taken that away and so whenever that happens now I just like okay well I don't need to be in that group like I just like no thank you please so yeah I mean I I think it would be marvelous and it definitely makes me sort of think about my preaching differently maybe I write writing differently that that this is a thing that matters so much um but I wonder if we, if we're as the church, as the wider church, if we're willing to do it. Like, I wonder if we're willing to say, like, actually, you know, we need to slow down in our speech and we need to, to speak with each other, to each other with kindness. And, and actually, like, we don't need to share all these, like, viral things that we don't know, like, what the sources are for them or, you know, like, because it's, because it's, because the church, the wider church, likes to do it. And we, but know. at the same time, we don't want to become a voice Sarah's of like. Sarah's sh- never gonna be a bishop. You don't want to okay, sh- shame the shamers. You know that doesn't seem we to work. That. You know, like we, we talked no, about, like, but like no. to t- well, I don't think it's like shame. I just think well, okay, I do like to shame shamers. Just to be clear, <laughs> um, but I think there's like I know what you mean. Like it's not gonna, as RJ was saying earlier, it's not gonna convince anyone. But I do, don't we just want relief from this? Yeah. Rutger. So can I tell a story? Yes. Yeah. I was talking to a wonderful prisoner of mine who I'm going to give a shout out. So hopefully he'll hear about this. Kyle Kyle Faircloth, who is a professor at Palm Beach Atlantic University, which is right next to us. It's also a non-denominational like Christian college, fairly conservative. He grew up in this area, but then spent 15 years with his family as a missionary in Thailand and Malaysia after moving back. So he just has a fascinating story. And I think to come back to America after being overseas for like two decades and see things with fresh eyes. But he was talking, and this reminded me of something you said, Sarah. He was talking about all these students he has from pretty sort of fundamentalist conservative Christian backgrounds mm-hmm. who they also, not just your Yale classmates, they also feel like it's their job to change the world. Yes. To save the world. And yeah. it totally, yeah. and they realize they can't, and it totally burns them out. Yeah. And then Kyle said something. He said, you know, as Christians, we're, we're not told to love the world. Like, that's God's job. Mm-hmm. We're told to love our neighbor, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and maybe the number one thing we can do as Christians, as, whether we're in leadership or not, is to stop trying to change the world yeah. and stop trying to save the world and just embrace, like, our smallness and our creatureliness and love the person directly in front of us, you know, and preach the gospel and visit the hospitals and tell people they need to give money (laughs) and lead Bible studies and just do the little things and stop trying to change everything and save everything because that's when you start getting into social media and rage posting and trying to go viral and trying to do things. It's like, no, stop. That's not your job. It's God's job. I want to tell the airport story. (laughs) <laughs> because it because I think that I mean I totally agree with you and I think the thing about like I do think this thing with social media gives us some feel like we feel like we can control it. Do you know what I mean? Like we yes. feel like we're the ones changing I'm the world. I'm going to change the world through yes, social media. So like, and I'm like, going to change my brother's mind. World, I'm going to show my dad what's up. Yeah, changing the world is is first of all we're never in charge of it. It never goes like we think it's going to go, and, and it feeds you know, your God complex. And then we just which laugh is like at the temptation later. of the serpent in the garden. It's just the you're most, not God. Yeah, 
But wait, so what's the airport story? So we're at the airport. Dave, did you not see this in the text? <laughs> oh, wait, I heard about this. You t- yeah. t- tell the story. <laughs> so like, so we're at the airport and um, it's just Josh and I. We're getting away. We actually saw RJ and Jamie. It was great. But anyway, we're in the airport and I'm going to go to one of those gift shops. I'm super excited because they, you know, candy magazines. I don't have my kids with me. And this, these, these two white guys, khaki pants, you know, 55 years old, whatever. They look like RJ and uh, Dave in 10 years. But anyway, they're standing in front hey. of me in line. Sorry, guys. They're standing <laughs> in front of me in line. And uh, and there's a young black woman who's the cashier. And they're kind of, I can tell that they're kind of messing with her. And there was like a confusion about price. And I heard one of them say to her, you need to be smarter than the system. And I was like, dang, that was Okay. So I kind of lean in a little bit closer, you know, I'm like, what's going to happen next? And she has um, a tattoo of a Playboy bunny on her neck, which like, I know that there are people that hear that and they're like, oh my God. But like culturally, like that may have made it been a choice. She made it like 14 years old in high school. Now it's on her neck. And who knows what comments this young woman has to deal with regularly. Um, So anyway, the guy asked her if she's a Playboy bunny. And she gets really uncomfortable and kind of shifts back and forth on her feet. And she says, no. And he goes, well, you have a tattoo of one on your neck. And, you know, this is the thing is like, I love cuss words and I love telling people off. And I really thought, oh my gosh, I was like, I'm about to lay into these guys. I lean in and this is what comes out of my mouth. Y'all need to move on. You said enough. Just like a Sunday school teacher, like my meemaw inhabited my body. And I was like, well, that, God, that didn't go well. <laughs> and one of the guys looks at me and he goes, at me, a 40-year-old mother too, he goes, get out of here, snowflake, just like that. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, first of all, no one said that in like six years, but okay. And But that's not what I said. I turned to face him because he wasn't making eye contact with me, you know, which is not a thing we get to do on social media. And I was like, I'm making eye contact with these dudes. So I turned my whole body face both of them. And I, this is what I say. I'm like, oh, what am I going to say? This is what I say. Y'all need to be better Christians and read the gospel. <laughs> and then I was like, what just came out of my mouth? You know, like I was like, that was the dumbest thing I have ever said in a fight. Like I didn't even use the F word. Like I was so disappointed in myself, but like, and I, I was in shock. The two guys were in shock. The woman behind the counter, like none of us expected this to come out of my mouth. You know, I mean, even me. You're really living into your baptismal covenant right oh now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and like, I think it's to me, like it was such a moment. And I've, you know, I've had these moments. Everybody has these moments as Christians when we don't get to choose what saving the world looks like. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's so much more like visceral and right in front of your face. And you're like dealing with another human being. Right. Then it is this like global, like sharing yeah. viral. You weren't trying to change, save the world. You were just trying to like stick up for this woman that yeah. was being harassed. And, you know? I, and like, it that's was what a totally, to and it was also like not a thing I did because I'm like progressive or like a snowflake, which I probably am. But like it was a thing I did because like I'm Christian, like and clearly because I yelled at this guy to read the Gospels. I was like, oh my god, this is so embarrassing. But like you know, like that's what came out of my mouth, and I just <laughs> Sarah, maybe we just need to fight more like that. You're losing you know? your edge, my dear. You're you losing your I edge. I am. I'm totally losing 
sanctification. Uh, sanctification. Never thought I'd see it happen. Never in my history. I want to say this about that, um, or about these. This um, when to answer to at least address the question about what the church can do. I think one thing yeah, the church can do is rather than try to save the world, uh, what it looks like to love our neighbors is to realize many, many, many of them, including many of the people actually with collars on are engaged in the same um, self-induced suffering that social media creates, the loneliness, the depression, the anxiety, the, the rage, and that those who come through the doors are probably, they're, they're, they're sad too. They're like, they're, that we're all actually, if we can connect on that level, not on the level of us all trying to meet a new standard of online discourse, but to know that everyone's sort of failing and think they're, they're the only one with a really dysfunctional relationship with this stuff. I mean, I think that that's a start. I, I like the, the gospel uh, message does address the guilty, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it addresses those. It also addresses the, the, the heavy burdened and those who are feel like they're on a treadmill to nowhere. I think that... Um, the message that we can get, what can we get at church that we can't get anywhere else? Well, I think one thing that it didn't, I, T.S. Eliot said the church is there to remind people of things they'd rather forget, which are sin and death. And I think when you said death uh, unburdened you of some of this, uh, the, the, the tyranny of the frivolous, like, um, <clears throat> and the factionalization, like that, we are there to talk about death and I, it, more loudly than we have, than we are, a little less about life. But secondly, I think that to know that what we have to offer is not a new, another, is not as much another moral vision as um, uh, an absolution for the immoral um, and the failures. I think that that's like, the further I get, um, like that's what we, that's what we can offer. We can talk about death, we can offer absolution, perhaps a slightly slower pace, a little bit of boredom, and um, occasionally a really good sermon from R.J. Heyman. Like that's well, and love. Yeah. <laughs> I sort of want to be like, hey, come check check out this other social media, uh, the hymnal, <laughs> the Book of Common Prayer. What's that, guys? <laughs> you know? Like, like I'm just saying, this is also you know who media, else went viral? but it's actually, but it's actually <laughs> social. It's actually you can look another human being in the face and not just be typing into a screen. You know, like, let's have church be a little bit more fun voice, than doom scrolling. Because I really hope you do. RJ. Church is not another. Good, but what'd you say? Be, it should be I a break. Hope you say this kind of stuff to your kids. Should church like, be a break from doom scrolling? No. I will never say any of this to my kids. Who, by the way, all they do is look at stupid memes all day long and like crack. You like crack up and I'm like, let me see. They're like, you won't think it's funny. They show it to me and it's not funny. <laughs> but, but, but it is to them. That's all they do. Well, there. Uh, I hope this hasn't been a, a episode long doom scroll because I think we've got something very constructive here. There, at one point, um, this is our transition into the final portion. Here is it. Uh, Height um, quotes uh, writing nearly a decade ago. Former CIA analyst Martin Gurry could already see the power of social media as what he called as a universal solvent, breaking down bonds and weakening institutions Mm -hmm. everywhere it reached. That's what he said. The same day I read that, I also came across this quote from Timothy Keller. He says, In the past, I thought of Easter as a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see Easter is a universal solvent. 
It can eat through any fear, any anger, and despair. I see it as more powerful than ever before. So we all just were at Easter services. I've got to preach this Sunday, um, and I've been thinking a lot about it. I want to hear what you said. Um, RJ, I haven't gotten a chance to listen to yours, and Sarah, I, I know you've got something coming. So what do you have to say? What did you tell your students about Easter? Oh, my God. So I was when you said in the um, text uh, that you were going to ask us this, or I guess it was in the email, I was like, should I tell him? Because this could be awkward. But then I was like, no, I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to tell him. Uh, I took my students out for dinner at a Mexican restaurant. That's what we did for Easter. <laughs> <laughs> well, there there you go. <laughs> yeah, um, we did. But I mean. The Feast of the I, Lamb. I have to say. um for the sake of, of joy and play, um, that was important to me. Um, it was important to me that they go to church on Easter. So I heavily suggested that they should go to Palmer on Easter because it's very close and they do Easter well. Um, and then, you know, we did an Easter egg hunt at the church, which was like the funnest. I love an Easter egg hunt where you're like, hiding Easter eggs, you know, by endowment leaves on the wall or whatever. Like, I just think there's such a beautiful thing about those two things together. Um, yeah, it's, it's important to me that, um, that there's play. I don't know. And, and we had this really funny thing happen that I've been thinking about, um, a student. So I've, I've started, this is the first year and this has been kind of wild to have prospective students to rice visit our ministry with their parents. And, um, so I had this student from California and my students just walked in and, um, and welcomed him, you know, and he's younger than he, they are. And he's trying to figure it out like they were. And they totally saw that in him. And, you know, I'm, I'm preaching this week uh, for them. We're not only going out to Mexican restaurants every week, but I'm preaching for them this week. And I just, I keep, you know, the ministry's grown a lot. And I keep thinking about the, you know, the thing in C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, where when you get to heaven, someone has to hold your hand to get you across the ground, right? Because it hurts your feet initially. And just like how, for me, it was a beautiful thing on Easter to watch my students um, be those people, you know, mm. and part of that has been our ministry together. And part of that is they're just like remarkable people. But anyway, it was an awesome Easter, but totally took them out to Mexican. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's amazing. RJ, what about you? Well, we're, we're doing confirmation this coming Sunday. The oh, bishop fun. is coming. And so we're, um, confirming a bunch of youth, but then also confirming, um, about an equal number of adults and one of the adults we're confirming um, told the most amazing story recently, uh, basically about her, like she went on an actual spiritual quest, right? She really wanted to know what to believe and and what to think about God. And, and so she, you know, investigated like all the major world religions, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism, and she read the Quran cover to cover, and she kept a spreadsheet with all of her thoughts. And, mm. um, and then she started reading the Gospels. She bought herself a, like a red letter you know, edition of the Bible um, where all the things that Jesus says are in red letters. And she said she started reading that, and when she saw what Jesus said and did, just everything in her just said yes, like this is good, and this is right, and he is different, and this is what I want, and this is what I need, and this is what I believe. 
Um, and that's really how she became, you know, how she became a Christian. So I think sometimes at Easter, you know, we talk about, I don't want to say secondary, or I have talked about sort of secondary things, and they're not secondary, things like resurrection and forgiveness and eternal life and all these things. But really what Easter is about, I said this year, is it's really just about this um, 30-something, you know, Jewish carpenter who died 2,000 years ago who apparently was God in the flesh. And if he came back from the dead, he actually is God. And if he's God, then God is good and right. Um, And so just to really keep the focus on Jesus, because whatever we may, you know, we're all... He's always somewhat enigmatic, right? We, we, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that I understood what he was about and what he tried to say and do and what his death and resurrection were about, and yet whenever you read the Gospels, you're always thrown for the loop a loop a little bit, right? But it's really about him as being the most unique and amazing and wonderful and um, person who's ever lived, and that if he came back uh, from the dead, then he's, he's God, and, and we are to... Hmm. He's, to he's worthy of our worship, um, something like that. <laughs> Just something. Yeah, a little something like that. Um, <laughs> something that's like that. beautiful. I mean, and then, and at, at, at which point you ordered the guacamole and 100%. people were like, <laughs> Oh, we rolled down. I did I end my like, sermon by encouraging them to two eat many guacs, peeps. Two quesos and crab nachos to start. Okay. Like it went <laughs> oh. on the ministry. Oh, yes. Yeah, you went to Psychonanias. Yes. If you got crab nachos, yes, you have to cycle on ice. Crab yes. nachos. I don't remember those. We did those not get in margaritas. This though. episode brought to you <laughs> by Cyclone and I is crab nachos. <laughs> well, let me. I've got to preach this weekend, and I'm preaching on the, the 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 apostles getting pulled up by the temple police and acts. And I always find it interesting to see like what was it that they preached? That they were so compelled to break all these laws preaching, um, and how does that sort of compare to what we preach today and like the words out of their mouths are usually like two or three things but it's usually like jesus god sent jesus and you killed him we slash we killed him because they're you know they are well aware of their own guilt like there's a there's an importance in sort of establishing blame or culpability or that he was this great thing happened and we totally resisted it blew it criminally you know executed this man and that but and that that god raised him and um uh, to bring israel the the, the repentance and uh, the forgiveness of sins so uh, i i was just thinking i was watching the opening episode of better call saul which is such a, an amazing television show and it's yet another one of these vince gilligan's always been trying to paint this sort of old he calls it an old testament logic of where no one ever gets away with anything and uh, the storyline, I'm not going to give away much, but someone's basically family concern gets, they get mowed down in a drug cartel thing. And he decides that like, the one guy who survives decide his whole well, of his life is going to be devoted to vendetta mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. killing all the people that killed his people. And you just think of yourself like, uh, if they found out that he was still alive, when they find out that he is still alive, they're going to be afraid. And they're going to want to run and hide or do everything they can to resist it. And just like the probably if the apostles are saying that you did this, um, they both have an interest in suppressing it for the sake of maintaining their own authority. But also like if we really did it and he's really still alive, then we are in trouble. 
Like we're, and uh, <laughs> when your father comes and, home, and yet uh, he's saying that people just assume that God is their enemy, and uh, but Jesus is um, the risen Jesus is not coming uh, to mow down his enemies and those who put him there, but to give them repentance and forgiveness of sin. And I think that that's just the most beautiful news that, as you said, R.J., that this man is is God and if that if if that's if if Jesus really was God that means that God is good and God is not like another character in breaking bad or better call Saul God is uh, it, it does not follow our instinctual desire for revenge and blood uh, but gives his own I mean it's it's a anyway that's what I think I'm preaching about uh Awesome. The two of you, we will probably, I think we're going to record one more episode before a bit of a hiatus um, to for the summer, but we'll be back in a, in a few weeks, God willing, and the people consent. Um, uh, thank you both for showing up. Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everyone who's listened. You're welcome. And I cannot wait to see folks in New York next week. Happy Easter. Love you guys. Bye. All right, love you too. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time. <laughs>